and you can press play. us harder, better, faster, stronger. Break it, harder, make it better, do it faster, makes us stronger, more than ever, power, faster, power, work is can only make me Congrats on the 20,000, you guys, really. Congratulations. Welcome to That That Don't Kill Me, a podcast about health, illness, and disability from the people who live it every day. I'm Kendall. And I'm Jamie. And welcome to episode five of season two. Episode five. Here we are. And um, we have a lot to talk about today. Um, we're going to talk about the COVID things. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the non-COVID things. Mm-hmm. We're going to get a little bit into uh, some discussion about illness memoirs, <laughs> which yes. and writing about illness and what that looks like. And we're going to discuss discussing illness. And yeah, exactly. What happens when you discuss it? Exactly. And how you discuss it? <laughs> it's going to get real meta. Um, and we're really excited about it. So, yeah. uh, but first. Mm. Weekend review. Bah, bah, bah. Weekend review. Um, so we are now a fifty percent vaccinated podcast. Wow! There it is. We're halfway there, baby. We're halfway there. And the other unique thing about this is that you we have gotten different vaccines. We have. So, so Jamie, we, tell us about your experience. So I got vaccinated now two days ago at the Javits Center in New York, which is a state-run center. Mm -hmm. And what I was not aware of, maybe some people are, some people aren't, until I went there, is that the Javits Center, and I'm assuming all the major state-run hubs, are military operations. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so basically everyone there who was not like a healthcare person was a soldier in full uniform. Um, (laughs) Nice. So that definitely uh, added to the experience. There was (laughs) definitely something very normal feeling about walking through the Javits Center, the empty glass uh, open Javits Center as a, a recording blared instructions about covid and people said kept saying to me um keep walking until you see the next soldier it felt very (laughs) normal and regular um (laughs) but it was really it was really efficient and i got the pfizer vaccine and um i can feel my dna changing already so what were your side effects uh arm pain was the main one the day of Um, I would say that my pain scale on the day of was like a seven or an eight. It was pretty wow. intense that night. Um, but what time of day did you get the vaccine? In the afternoon, around two o'clock. Mm. So by like six or seven, it was like feeling the worst. Um, and the next day? The next day, light arm pain. And now 48 hours out, I feel fine. 
I don't have okay. anything. Um, Interesting. And, and that was about it. Do you have your second appointment? I do. So I don't know how it was where you went, but as I understand it, other places, city-run places, like you go and you then, when you're there, you make appointment number two. At the Javits, they were like, we'll let you know. Um, we'll make the appointment for you and let you know. So yesterday morning at 9.30, I got a text that just said, your second appointment is at this day, at this time. It's the exact same time as my first one, but 21 days later. And yeah. they did it for me. Um, yeah. So that was, that was pretty nice. My experience also was they were like, okay, same day, mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. We're going, f- you know, four weeks later, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, four weeks to the exact day later mm. um so it's <laughs> like okay all right sounds good uh, sign me up i was i <laughs> was like are. i was wondering if i would have to like try to get back in some sort of queue because like if you go to the um some of the sites in new york the websites to try to look for appointments there will be listings specifically for second appointment uh queues so i was like clearly someone somewhere is getting an appointment and not having a second one booked. Yeah. Um, so I was like, well, am I going to have to do that? I would imagine that that's like a kind of fallback option for people who... Slip through the cracks the, or something. The people aren't... Um, yeah, slip through the cracks. Like the providers that they had gotten it through... Run out of doses or something. Something happens. Yeah. Um, there was also... There was a, there was a separation it was clear that part of the Javits center was being used for MTA workers. And like, Mm. um, I mean like in the same, it was all in the same place, but like part of the population was MTA workers. And I kept getting asked if I was an MTA worker. And then when I left, they were like, if you're an MTA worker, you have to go over here and talk to this person about your second dose. Mm. Um, and if you're, but if you're not like it gets scheduled automatically. So yeah, I mean, if you're, I guess if you're an MTA worker and you don't, you forget or you don't know how to follow up when you're there, Maybe that's for them as well. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I'm on my way. This is exciting. So, wait, your next appointment will be March? Yes, March 11th. March 11th. March 11th. Oh, my gosh. That's only literally seven days after. Yeah, seven. Am I doing my math right? Six days after me. Wait, okay. So, that's so funny. So, you got it. Bef- definitely before I did by several weeks, your first one, but Moderna is twenty eight like days. Twenty eight days instead of twenty one, and Moderna takes longer to take full effect. We might end up being fully at immunized immunity at the same at time. the same time. <laughs> also, here's the other thing about this. Mm-hmm. I read an article that was basically like a study coming out of Israel slash I think other places saying that the Pfizer vaccine, they think after one dose. Oh, I did about see this. Four weeks later or something yeah. or that you hit full immunity, like basically. I did see um, this, which is kind of an improvement, right? I also was wondering then, like, will they just stop? I don't think they'll do this, but like, would they just stop, start getting people one doses and like letting I, it go? But I was, ha- I'm happy that I have my second dose booked and uh, that it's, it's clear that I'm going to get a second dose. 
Yes. I, I've also wondered the same thing. I actually, the, the night after I got it, Thursday night, I had a stress dream about them canceling all the second doses. Oh, no. Um, That's the worst. First, yeah. you have stress dreams about the first dose, and then you have stress dreams. Okay. Tell me about the moment that the injection was into your arm and then you got the band-aid like were you just like i'm gonna cry I'm i was gonna... i was probably like close to close to tears like it was the closest to relief i've felt in like in yeah. like a year Quite um, some time. do you want to big speaking, deal speaking of in a year do you want to know, know something else funny what my second dose appointment uh-huh. is in exactly a year from when it was declared a pandemic here in the United States and from when I left New York. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder what day I left New York. Um, I think I left like a day or two after you did. Did you? After. Yeah. Um, You know, the only, the only way I have to know is to look at what date I wrote the um, New York times op-ed because that came out when I was this the day after I drove home. <laughs> oh right. Um, and so let me just see, March tenth. So I drove home on March 9th. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and I was what the a 11th. year. What a um, year. Okay, so given that was like part of your week, but not your full week, do you have a different number to assign your full week? Yeah, probably the inverse. Because getting the vaccine is quite a great thing. So probably my my pain scale, I would say, is at a zero. This is one of the best weeks in the last year. I mean, wow, it's, I mean, it's just, I, I, can't, you. I can't feel any other way about it. Like, I just genuinely feel so relieved. Oh, um, so that's really, I and like, that. I haven't been seeing my parents. My, mm-hmm. my, one of my parents has been sick. Like, I've been so worried about like infecting them. So like, maybe I can, in when I'm immune, go see them again like it's you know it's a a genuine like improvement uh, of course for my life even though the pandemic in general is not over yet um that's so awesome i'm so glad that um that you got it i'm thrilled as well i also just want to mention and then we can move on um i was like furiously searching twitter the night and the day before because of the snow we keep getting Mm. er, there was speculation that either the vaccine clinics were going to get canceled for that for thursday or friday Mm -hmm. and de blasio as he does now i guess like every three days came out and was like we're almost out of doses like we've got nothing left um so i was like really worried about that and i was googling and i came across this article online about basically about how the method that I and some of my friends used to sign up on the day that the new eligibility opened was um, we, we committed some malfeasance against the system because the link that we used, which is a publicly available link on the state government website, was not the one that they intended people to sign up through. And we are so does the link not work anymore it doesn't work anymore we are being <gasps> chastised for being uh, line cutters and line jumpers wait and what, seriously yes and By, what they from mean, who uh, cuomo like cuomo's office um 
I'm just going to pull it up. About 830 people booked vaccine appointments Sunday through links that bypassed New York's eligibility screener, allowing them to snag coveted slots at state-run vaccination sites, while others were forced to wait up to an hour in a virtual queue. So here's what actually happened. If you went through the main links that the state gave out that day, chances are you hit an error wall. Mm-hmm. You hit like a, the system is yeah, overloaded. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. Some people were able to actually get through and get to a queue. But what happens is once you get through the queue, you're put into a new link and people were taking that link and, and sharing it that. And, yeah. and sharing it. And what I would like, what I would consider that is doing their job for them. Literally generosity. Literally generous, like getting at the proper link yeah. to share. But what they wanted us to do, what was the, what was following the rules was getting, was to get an error message and say like, you can't get in. But because we some, we did schedule <laughs> yeah. appointments, we don't, they didn't actually want us to schedule appointments. Um, and uh, Cuomo's spokesman um, said that individuals were incorrectly sharing these links. Um, and what they were saying in this article to kind of like scare people is that because that bypassed the first page that's like why are you eligible that theoretically uh that meant people could sign up without being eligible which is false because you then had to go back through after you booked it and reconfirm your eligibility actually in two separate ways did Um, you have to prove anything not when i was there also because the same day that i was there the city changed their guidance and said that they're not going to ask for any um, doctor's medical notes documentation. Or, or medical documentation. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, interesting. So all you have to do is sign Did a piece of paper. Did you have it, though, in case you needed it? Yeah, I had so many, I had a ton of documents with me. Okay. I had a letter from my doctor. I had, you know, um, I was ready to pull up my diagnosis, all that stuff. Um, but you also have to separately, after you've booked an appointment, sign a, a letter that says... I am eligible and I am under penalty of, you know, a thousand dollar fine or whatever. And you have to, you have to sign that in order to get the vaccine. That's yeah. I mean, the whole thing is so, so I just, I just went to a pharmacy. Yeah. And they took my, like, looked at my ID badge. They took down, they took my address, like my information. And uh, Mm -hmm. that was it. Like, that was it. Does that was it. They asked me like, sorry. Yeah. I was just gonna say no one it it wasn't super difficult right the only thing i was asked uh related to my eligibility when i got to the station to actually get the shot was they said um what's your job and i was like i'm a freelancer and they're like no no no. how are you eligible and i was like oh medical and they're like oh, okay and that was it mm. Yeah. Um, Interesting. It's wild. Um, but uh, at least I but, got it. But you won the Hunger Games. I did really. win. I did win the Hunger Games. My God. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not a good feeling, that part of it. But I know. I'm very glad to have gotten it. Yes, me too. And, this, and the site is running really efficiently. And I think we said this before, I think at some point, but like, I think that's hopefully what they're going to continue to do in other places is like deputize arms of the military and stuff to carry I think it out. They are in yeah. a lot of different places. Yeah. Because we just don't have enough like 
bodies state health workers to be yeah to pull it off exactly um, and it's it's working well there so there you go i mean my god like train my mom to give shots in people's arms she would 100 yeah. do it i think i've heard some places are doing are recruiting volunteers maybe not to give the shots but to like help do the Work. logistics yeah, yeah 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 i know that some i actually know someone in park slope who's working as a volunteer at a vaccination sh- site gotcha too that's, so that's good yeah how about you how's wow. your how's your week um my week was solid mm-hmm. um i would say maybe like a two two or three two or three i think it's pretty good pretty good chilling out you know i'm i'm sitting here in the being a florida bitch 100 (laughs) percent um yeah not leaving my house though although Mm. we did go pick up food and i was astounded Mm. by the behavior around me and like my heart was racing yeah masklessness like groups of 20 people fully drunk like traipsing through different restaurants like restaurants are fully open there is that yeah fully open um and i guess they are here too so much masklessness Mm. uh my heart was pounding out of my chest like pounding mm. i was in my car <laughs> like and my heart was pounding my and i was like this is gonna be an interesting thing to go back to like yeah am right. i gonna be able to do it like yeah. am i gonna feel i feel like i'm gonna feel kind of bad um yeah so that was interesting and made me feel all sorts of weird things and made me think about just how weird it's going to be to go back to like life after this. There's definitely going to be an adjustment period, I think for everyone Mm -hmm. or from, for a lot of people. Um, Like the anxiety is just going to like destroy me. Yeah. So I don't know. There's that. Um, Some other small things here and there, but overall I'm doing pretty well. Nice. Pretty well. Can't complain. Very good. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we really wanted... We've talked a lot about different, you know, ideas for what this episode should be about. Obviously, we've been really COVID-focused. Mm-hmm. And that's fun and all, but... but we fixed that problem, so... It does, yeah. We do need to move on to something else. <laughs> we fixed it already. Mm. Obviously, you know, we're both getting vaccinated, so it's no longer a problem. It's over. It's over. Don't worry. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> so now we can move on to other topics. No, we'll probably yeah. still... We'll definitely still be talking we'll about COVID a lot, but... But um, today but so, we wanted to cover something else, you know? Yeah. So there was there was a, a piece this week in the New Republic that uh, we both read and had a lot of thoughts about. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, a piece of criticism uh, about a new illness memoir, but overall, it's it's really asking the question of like, what is the point of the illness memoir now? Mm -hmm. And what do these books offer? So it looks at one book in particular, which we'll talk about, but also just the genre in general. Um, Yeah. And, and I would say like, 
almost six storytelling in general, right? Like just in yes. in all forms. In all forms. Um, and there are subgenres within the genre. Like, and that's one thing it talks about is that it's not just one lane mm-hmm. of uh, things that that are out there. Um, I mean, first off, I think it's very difficult to get an illness memoir published. Like, incredibly. Because yes. it is seen as a very narrow category. Yes. Um, Which plays a role, and we'll talk about this, in the ones that do get published and what they're like and how they focus themselves. Yeah, and I also think, you know, we both talk about this a lot because we're interested in illness memoirs. We also read a lot of illness memoirs Mm. and, like, potentially want to write memoirs (laughs) eventually of our own. And we also, like, we both are currently... We both write from time to time about, about illness and publish, illness. Yes, even that's exactly. not, you know, books. Um, and so it's interesting because uh, this this book in particular that it focuses on is Tessa Miller's um, What Doesn't, what kill, doesn't you. kill You, mm-hmm. which is very of the ilk of our podcast name mm-hmm. that yes. they don't kill you kill you yes um and she she also has a subtitle uh a life with chronic illness lessons from a body in revolt um yeah i don't i don't i don't love that i I have a general rule it's a rule with exceptions like all rules (laughs) my general rule is a book with a subtitle is usually a book i'm not interested in oh interesting Mm mm-hmm yeah. And I mean, I can expand on that later. But um, so yeah, so that's the main book that is discussed. It just came out um, recently. And there are a couple of other illness memoirs who've, that have come out recently. Mm-hmm. One is debuting as a New York Times bestseller, and that is um, Suleika Jawad's um, Between Two Kingdoms. Yes. Um, which I feel like is, that one's been about to come out for a while or I feel like I first heard about it a long time ago it it took a long time for her to write it okay. and so I think the deal was announced so much earlier than I mm. mean it's been a long time I think yeah um and so I'm I would say about 60% of the way done with that book mm-hmm. um and Suleika writes about leukemia she um got leukemia or was diagnosed with leukemia around 22 or 23. Mm. Um, and so it was like right post-college. Um, and uh, she had written a column for the New York Times during part of her experience. Um, she ends up getting a bone marrow transplant. And yeah, so that's that book, I'd say. And then... Yeah. This book, Tessa Miller's book, is about her experience getting diagnosed with Crohn's. Yes. Um, also post-college, like mm-hmm. early 20s. Um, and it's interesting. I think both of them, what they have in common is that they have this kind of uh, healthy young person gets sick. It yes. changes their life. Yeah, right. It's Thing. a it's a a transformation to sickness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't begin with sickness. Yeah, um, and that provides a kind of 
plot point that is like a turning point, right? Yes. Um, okay, now they're on the, this journey from sickness to try to get have some restoration of their health to what they what they had been to where right. they had been, right? Um, which is not which is a different. I mean, w- w- there's many different experiences, but is not the average experience of or not the experience of a lot of people with uh chronic illness in that they don't get better or in that in they... the, in that a, there are a lot of people who are never well who never know wellness or a point of being healthy um yeah i mean i think there sick. are a lot of people who know it when they're young and then mm. lose it and never get it back yes um i think there are less people who've never had it period right um which is where you and i occupy Mm. and i think that that is a very underrepresented perspective but it's also a very very small percentage of people yes so yeah it's true should we interesting should we jump into the piece a little bit yes and read we'll read a little bit and it'll spark some thoughts great um so it says in the New Republic, the Constellations of Illness memoir. The author, the writer of this piece is Anna Altman. Um, it says writing about the experience of illness is a burgeoning genre. What kind of hope can it offer? Uh, what is writing about sickness for? In the 1990s, Anne Hunsaker Hawkins, a professor of humanities at Penn, Penn State, undertook a study of what at the time was a new and burgeoning genre, illness memoirs. Before 1950, book-length personal accounts of illness were uncommon, she noted. Uh, before 1900, they were almost unheard of, but by 1999, they were abundant. That year, she counted some 60 memoirs of breast cancer alone. Uh Hawkins focused on how these myths and metaphors, which often offer redemption of some kind, could be useful to the sick person. Illness memoirs, she wrote, quote, offer us a disquieting glimpse of what it is like to live in the absence of order and coherence. In response, their authors attempt, quote, to restore to reality its lost coherence and to discover or create a meaning that can bind it together again. Um, so one thing she mentions off the bat, which we were just kind of talking about, is, or, or getting to i guess is that for a long time the memoirs of illness that did exist were cancer focused mm-hmm. um those were the ones that uh got published mostly because cancer is the most dire shocking illness in the imagination of most people right um, so it's coming, the most known it's the most known illness it's it's um got a highly visual component to it which I think the helps stakes are very clear. Yeah. It's yeah. like bald head. We have like symbolism around yes. cancer in mm-hmm. a way that we don't have for other illnesses. Yes. And the, and the fact that it's terminal makes the, the prospect of death a lot sort of more immediate and closer and easy for people to understand. Well, what do you mean? It's terminal. Like aren't that most m- illnesses, well, that I mean, Terminal? we can get into that, right? The fact that, um, I mean, chronic illness, which is what we call what we have, basically, is thought to be separate from terminal illness, and that terminal illness kills and chronic does not. But that's a misconception. That's not true. But I think I most... mean, if I had not gotten a liver transplant, my illness would be terminal. Right. Yes. And if it's they that... don't get chemo, their illness is terminal. Right. No. Um, 
no, it's true, but we have terms that we refer to these things in that are different. I mean, we don't necessarily call a lot of organ uh, issues terminal in the same way that we call cancers terminal. Interesting. I mean, I'm not sure I necessarily think that's true, but I think also cancer I, is such a wide spread, right? Yes. Like some cancer is terminal cancer and other cancer other is cancer not. Other cancer is not. It's, I th- what I'm trying to say is that in the popular imagination, sure. most people think of it as cancer is terminal, other things are not. Mm. Cancer is the terminal thing and other things are not. And terminal That's in a way that like it's immediate and... um but yeah, uh, and another thing that she talks about here, which I think is an interesting place to start um, when we think about the question of like, what is an illness memoir for, or what is it talking about, um, or, or when you're talking about illness, who is it for? One thing that is kind of goes unsaid sometimes is that most people who are writing about illness at least start from a place of doing it from for themselves, right? Mm. There's... Oh, and a yeah. lot of writers in their books usually I mean, admit I think, as much. Um, I think that's true of other things too, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, but we then like very quickly try to push the question outward. Well, who are they writing for? What is their audience, et cetera? But I think that ignores the fact that a lot of times I think illness memoirs start from not really knowing who they're writing for, not knowing exactly who their audience is going to be or, and, and there's usually a very personal reason of just like, as she says, like, I need to make some uh, sense out of this. I need to make some order and, and restore some coherence to this. Um, Which I think is a place that a lot of people uh, start from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Make meaning. Right. Out of something. Yes. I also think in the... Especially something so hard and challenging, it's like, well, what's the purpose for this, right? Exactly. I was just going to... We want to believe that there's a purpose for our suffering. Yes, yes. And I think especially that reasoning has gotten... Uh, has found more purchase in the past maybe 10 to 20 years where the idea of like your own the 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 personal narrative and uh everyone sort of being uh a spokesman for something has really taken hold and allowed a lot of people to think like when they go through some adversity well what is this for what does this amount to and if you write a book you get an actual physical thing out of it like mm-hmm. you actually create something for it from right. it whether or not yeah. that book is read um by the people you want it to be or whether it's well received or not like you can stop right there and say like i've made something of this right yeah yeah absolutely um i think ultimately to me it really seems like that's not enough of a reason to write a book right um and i mean I wonder I wonder if that's then really that helpful to other people. Yes. Right? Like And I I agree with you and I think these questions are actually becoming more relevant as the idea of like 
putting the personal narrative out there becomes more widespread. Like the more books we get, the more valid it is to ask, well, what is this really for? And what is this accomplishing? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Altman also cites uh, a sociologist named Arthur Frank, who writes his own memoir in the 90s about heart disease and cancer. Um, and then in that sort of divides the illness memoir into three subgenres. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being restitution, in which the person returns to a previous state of health, right. like, which we can also call like maybe resolution or something um, right. to some effect. Chaos, in which all life events are contingent and no one is in control. And quest, in which illness is seen as a spiritual journey. Yeah. I find that I think quest and restitution feel like the most common, right? Yes. Yes, I agree with that. And I think they often can overlap. Yes, I think they do. I think they often do. Um, And I think the books we were talking about before, about this sort of the burgeoning subgenre of young person is healthy, record scratch, you know, how did I get here? (laughs) Then I get sick is uh, really of the restitution genre Mm -hmm. of like, I've lost something and now I need Mm -hmm. to get it back. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think the illness memoirs often really also very much exclude any kind of physical disability from a perspective of like the visible kind. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're often not that's like a totally separate entity versus the right. falling into an illness uh yes. if that makes sense like it totally. they do feel like two different things two separate things yeah yeah well yeah and the, i mean to the point of restitution like they're even for the people who that's not true they're still the belief is very powerful that if you get sick, that you can return to a, a place of health. But for a lot of people with physical, visible disabilities, there's there can be no, for a lot of people, there's no fixing that. There's no mm-hmm. remedying. There is no right. restoration um, right. that can happen. Um, yes. And then I think the the danger, and I think that this is what the article kind of continues on with, is that you know like what are the lessons that you can be really kind of teaching people from your illness experience yes and are those lessons positioning people for this kind of almost candy coated or you know potentially even relatively dishonest yeah um experience where oh just do this thing and you will you too will also yes be better or you'll learn something deep from this bad experience that you're in or um you know there's some kind of meaningful conclusion or golden ticket that just kind of magically makes everything better right and that you can you can pass that on. I mean, it's almost like trying to emulate uh, like business books. You know, I'm the how yes, the, the CEO, secrets to success. Yeah, how the CEO of Home Depot, you know, <laughs> turned a struggling bit of whatever, as as if you know it it can be um, boiled down to bullet points. 
um, and she, she and and you know. often honestly like i think that what is so difficult about that and the reason it often works uh market wise or mm-hmm. to you know it's sellable is because it taps into this idea that illness is in our control and that recovery yes. is in our control yes. and therefore just do this xyz thing and you too can be free from illness and that taps into this like notion that we've oh, i hate and that we've talked about a lot which is that illness is in the person's control and therefore they can solve it themselves heal thyself right um, right which is just really untrue in most of chronic most illness. Cases. It's has no, your effort can only aid the situation, but it has ultimately not a lot of bearing on whether or not your body complies. Right. Someone, someone else can take the exact same sort of prescription that you give them about how to handle it and have a completely different outcome and also every Um, person's super super different which is why medical advice is like never a good idea right yes Um, and i think that's also why personally i am drawn to the other subgenre which is which is chaos um and i mean we had (laughs) this is not surprising at all to me yeah yeah this is new information uh, given what uh yeah. yeah, given what I know about you. Yeah, I mean, we had Ann Boyer on the show last season, mm-hmm. and I think who's the author of The Undying? The Undying. Who they all, she also mentions that uh, in this article, but I think The Undying falls into the chaos subgenre. I mean, it's a, it's also a very experimental book, so Definitely. it's very it's hard to categorize. Yeah. But her, I mean, Ann Boyer's perspective, I think, was essentially that she was trying to do a corrective to the to the ones the narratives that existed that right. you can follow a regimen and then you're right. cured. Yes. And I think, you know, to so to bring in the Between Two Kingdoms book mm-hmm. that I mentioned at the beginning about uh Suleika Jawad, who again fell um ill through leukemia after college. I think that her narrative is actually not and i haven't fully gotten to this part in the book but i just know based on her other work that she doesn't wrap things up in a little pretty bow and Mm -hmm. it's not like hey uh illness is over i'm better Mm -hmm. um you know i think for a lot of people and ann boyer would 100 percent agree with this once cancer is over and the treatments are over, you're kind of just, your body is left decimated by this thing right? and by the treatments themselves. And then there's this whole other process of like um, your body having to restore itself to its kind of natural world order after you've been literally injected with toxic chemicals for, for sometimes years. And, I would say Suleika basically, and I would agree with this, describes that like the post period of illness, like the on st- more stable ground in a healthier, you know, body, uh, not necessarily as actively sick, it can be actually even harder yes. than the fighting the sickness itself. Yes. And Altman actually says that, says as much in this 
piece. She says, as these categories, especially of restitution and spiritual gain, became more standardized, readers and critics began to find them frustrating or alienating. What if illness doesn't result in a net positive gain of perspective and capacity for contentment, but a gaping wound in your sense of self or the narrative of your life? And Mm -hmm. that... Uh, like you say, even especially in the in the um, example of restitution, that the resolution of the illness is not some point of finality, is not some resolution in itself for a lot of people. If that's even something you can achieve, big asterisk, the resolution of the illness, mm-hmm. um, as you're saying, that maybe the problems even only begin then. Um, right. Well, you're you're left with your life that's just been kind of left in ruin in a big way and you're yeah. kind of left to pick up the pieces and with this kind of looming feeling of, well, I could get sick again at any time. Yes. Because I, yes. I think the other thing that these narratives do is they fail to kind of accommodate the idea that for people who have experienced illness, illness is never far from knocking on their door again. It's, it's um, ongoing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's either ongoing or it can come back. Or it can come back, right. Know? And the thing, I mean, the thing about a book is like, you have to publish it at some point. Like it has to be, right. there has to be an end point in your life where you decide. Well, this is, yeah. this is interesting though, because I think oftentimes this is the tricky part of memoir. Like mm-hmm. when do you, when do you cut the narrative? Yeah. Right. And I mean, I think that's how you end up with a lot of a lot of the more popular writers who write multiple books. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also probably part of why memoir has changed as a genre over time. I mean, it, it used to be thought that a memoir was something that someone who's at the you know, end of your life, at the end of your life, going to write. Yep. And now it's and now we've sort of reframed it and it can be an ongoing thing because people have chapters in their lives and, and things change. Um, but especially with illness, it's the you there's also in, in the writing of the book this idea that you have to you have to uh offer some sense of resolution or that you get to some changed point um, um jamie can we talk about your effort in writing oh yeah i mean we can um i mean i'm really interested in that from a just like what your experience was and also what what it makes you think about now having had that experience and reading this article yeah um, if you could fill in for people sure. <laughs> i don't if you want to yeah you just mean like things i've published or like manuscripts no manuscripts manuscript okay um so i've been i've been working on a manuscript now for like five years um going on six meaning working on like I've picked it up and put it down a bunch. Um, And one thing, I mean, the main thing that really threw it off was I started writing when I was in a point of relative health um, when I was 22, 23. Um, And about a year after that, when I was a point at where I had like a finished manuscript and was like, oh, I did maybe this is something. Um, I got very sick again. And I uh through the recovery, through the recovery from that event, which was long and slow and in some ways still ongoing, I had to rethink um 
I mean, it, it totally upended my own understanding of my illness um, mm -hmm. and kind of put back in my uh, eyeline the idea that this wasn't something that was going to resolve. Like I had been in a, a place of general resolution for a couple of years and gotten complacent with the idea that things were generally going to be okay. Um, mm -hmm. Even knowing that something could change down the line. I mean, mm -hmm. it just, it, it sort of come, goes out of your mind at a certain point. Right. Um, and I mean, in the, in the aftermath of that, I've been rethinking how and whether and why I want to tell some story and, and write and continue writing this book. And I'm, I'm going to, I, I want to write something and will probably uh, change it somewhat from what it's been. Yeah. So, okay. I guess a follow-up question on that is yeah. like, I think at the beginning to your earlier kind of point about your writing from a perspective of being kind of like a 22 year old, 23 year old or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and you were thinking, it was being more kind of in your head marketed as like a coming of age kind yes, of story yeah. or more like um more like one of those kinds of books like boy yeah, grows like, up through illness thing right right um yes. i guess also based off of your extremely popular award winning <laughs> just kidding, um <laughs> Uh, modern love column yeah um which was about like hooking up in college and taking yeah. one's shirt off and like right. just the the like oddities of being young and sickish right what now i guess like in reading this kind of article and like seeing these other illness memoirs come out like what kind of rethinking does it have you does it have you doing like what 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 about that is not true anymore and what about that like doesn't feel right or does it feel right yeah does, do you know what i mean no totally um and well i'll say that like my thinking is like continually being changed i think it of was of course obviously I think, I think it was changed by experience like my health issues after right finishing the manuscript i think it was changed by reading ann boyer's book i think it was changed by different relationships I've had in the, over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, why why I liked this piece and wanted to talk about it was because it kind of put into words things that I hadn't been able to like get from my head out, you know, mm -hmm. I hadn't Outside been able to put into head. words. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. I guess I guess what I'm grappling with is the fact that I really believe, and this has taken a number of years to come to, but that for me and for people similar to me, like like you, you know, in the kind of in the category of illness that we have, I guess um, th th there isn't no resolution in a way that you can count on, and so to yeah. write something as if it is an arc that ends is fundamentally disingenuous um, mm -hmm. and would personally feel to me like lying. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a book that I want to, or really can write. And I think that's the bigger difference is like, and, and I, you know, I've, I worked on this for a number of years. Um, I worked with professionals on that manuscript and 
encountering suggestions of how to change it. I mean, over and over again, the feeling I just kept having was like, I can't write that book. Like, I understand what it needs to be in order to sell. Mm -hmm. um, And I can't, like, I physically can't do it and emotionally can't do it. Yeah, well, I guess that that's mostly what I'm interested in, this kind of, like, idea of, like, we've both talked about this a lot, right? But this idea of, like, what sells. What sells, yeah. And I wonder... I actually am very, I'm very confused. No, no shade to Tessa because I haven't Mm -hmm. read her book. Um, But just based on what I've read or what I know about it, like, why did it sell? Like that, I'm just very. Yeah, I mean, I've had the the what will sell conversation a lot of time, you know, many, many times or the this won't sell X, Y, Z. I think the one big disclaimer to, to put up is that like, as with most like media industries, no one actually has the answer and everyone's just kind of grasping at straws most of the time. Totally. And going off of like the thing that just happened five minutes before. Um, But it actually makes a lot of sense to me that Tessa sold because um, the thing that I was, the thing that I was told like over and over is that the clearer that you can be and the easier um, you can make it for the reader the more accessible you can make something um, and the more um, like my people I've worked with on it were never trying to get me to make like an instructional book because they knew I would never write that. But the like instructional book is the easiest thing to sell. I would say like, absolutely. Um, the like, Here's here are, how to do here are the lessons. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Here are the lessons I learned. Um, whether or not there's any truth to it. Um, because also keep in mind that people like buying and selling these books don't have any I, conception themselves of like what's tr- true or not. You know what I mean? Like they can't. And it's also this is another tricky thing with this genre is that like a person's experience is not a fact you can dispute, right? Right. Um, but we as readers can say that we don't think it's you know totally fair to be prescriptive about certain things or didactic about certain things um but yeah i think the how-to is very easy to sell i think the 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 resolution actually coming Mm -hmm. to some point of resolution at some point in the book very easy to sell um also depends on your platform as with everything i think if you have a platform you can be given more leeway in breaking the rules a little bit sure yeah if you're someone who who already had some like a column or whatever you have followers or whatever if there are where's areas that you want to say i don't want to write the thing that sells it becomes yeah. a little there's a little more wiggle room i often think about that when i think about um roxanne gay and hunger mm-hmm. and her memoir about um her experience with trauma and then her kind of you know just falling apart for many many years and dealing with the repercussions of that trauma in a in a in a way that i think like most people would never have published that book had she not written and i think she's been actually been open about this had she not written and become kind of well known for bad feminist yeah right. um, which was an incredibly marketable commercial yes. book and concept yes um that really had nothing to do with her honestly and was more kind of subject matter expertise, opining, that kind of thing. Um, 
I often wonder about that and like what kind of decisions you make in order to kind of write the thing that you want to write. Um, and I think yeah. one of the things is that I don't, I mean, I guess my question to you would be, do you want to write an illness memoir? I think I still do in some way. Mm-hmm. I think I want to, I'm, I've redefined what that looks like necessarily, but I want to find a way to not feel like I'm contributing the, you know, umpteenth iteration of an assembly line of previous items. You know what I mean? Um, I want to, like, the more normalized illness memoirs become, the more it's just going to be like, now it's the one about kidney disease. Now it's the one about, um, right. uh, you know, it's, we're going to go down a list of illnesses, basically, and right. we're going to get different ones in each category. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying I think that's what's going to happen. Um, and I don't necessarily know that I want to do that if I want to write you know, the heart one or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, it's better than writing the liver one, Jamie. <laughs> um, and you can't even begin to disagree with me on that. <laughs> I will not disagree with you on that. I will not yeah. disagree with you on that. Um, the heart is already a very, uh, a metaphor that people are very warm to in literature. So yes, um, it is, yes. <laughs> and it's like, a, just a, pr- it's like an easier, Think, it's very, play it's, on yeah. words. Yeah. The heart can mean so many things. You can, right. I mean, liver. There's really not a lot of things you can do with that. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's very true. The one thing I will it's say like is, spleen. yes. <laughs> the one thing I will say is the one book that was just period, like titled heart period, nothing else, um, has already been published, so that's out the window. And it was claimed by the worst person possible. It is Dick Cheney's memoir about his heart attacks and his pacemaker. Um, One of the many many crimes against humanity he's committed is stealing that book title. Yeah, um, that's... Anyway, no, I I agree. Yes, it has changed how I I think about this. I'm still thinking about it currently. I will also say that like my opinion, my feeling when I started writing years ago was that I don't need to sell this book. I need to sell the one that I want to write, um, which is why I partially why it's taken me so long is because I've been told how to redo it. And I have said, I don't want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't imagine at any time soon I will like give in fully and just like write the thing that I know can sell. Um, that doesn't really yeah. hold a lot of interest for me. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, it, it, it does. I wonder like the whole question of like, what is the purpose of an illness memoir? Um, to me, it's almost a silly question. And I, I think that the idea of having something be called an illness memoir or be versus another kind of memoir Mm. uh, is stupid because illness can be the backdrop of a lot of experience, but it doesn't have to be the whole experience. Yeah. And um, no one's calling Glennon Doyle's memoir a addiction memoir right no one's calling no one called uh, hillbilly elegy an addiction memoir for that matter either right which it was um Um, no one called it no one called um you know wild in a recovery memoir right right? yes like there are all these different kinds of 
life experiences and illness is just one of the many things that like can be kind of shaping in someone's life but isn't it more about the what it shaped rather than the illness itself like no i I agree i just think it's kind of weird that it gets kind of gets put in those terms sequestered into this category of illness memoir and then it's like oh can an illness sell right um when i just like don't really think that why would why would a, a memoir about someone's like i don't know abusive dad sell be more, more than, yeah. sellable right. than an illness memoir yeah for sure i don't know that's yeah. just my two cents totally i mean i like i i think the val- the question has value in the context of this article but i agree with you i also think it's worth pointing out that that question doesn't get asked beyond memoir about like anything <laughs> no one goes like what's the point of the novel i mean like people have written that that argument before in like i don't know conservative publications about how culture is dead but it's you know no one takes it very seriously no one goes like you know what what's the point of uh, cookbooks anymore you know um <laughs> So I agree with you that it's maybe because it seems it feels specialized. I also think one thing that's hopefully changing or maybe not is that I think the idea of why illness was hard to sell previously was this implicit belief that it's a rare experience and so people can't connect to it. I think what the truth is that's becoming a little bit easier to acknowledge is that most people have experienced it in some way and it's been so sequestered and taboo to talk about that hesitance that people have is more about it's too close or too familiar with something they may have experienced that they felt shame around that they don't want to hear about or don't want to talk about or have been told not to talk about. Uh, and and that contributes to why it's seen as like this, sque- this thing you have to be squeamish about um, rather than the idea that like people have no concept of illness and they just can't. Relate. I also think this is a really, I mean, I don't even know if this is accurate, but in my life, it does seem like COVID-19 has opened up this kind of opportunity in a way that I think didn't feel like it existed before. Yes. Like this, this new pivot or understanding of like health Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think it's made doctors famous. Mm-hmm. It's made, it's like, it's taken on the healthcare system and given it like a new sexy spin. Yeah, we have dancing um, epidemiologists now. That's a thing we have in our culture <laughs> because of this pandemic. Yeah. And I think, you know, that does make me think, okay, well, what will the next five years look like from a yeah. perspective of, of, of like, cultural interest in Mm -hmm. health illness disability i also think mental health is definitely getting bigger burgeoning area of interest for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and that's feels like you know not super separate um right it's a little separate but it's not doesn't need to be definitely um, overlaps i mean something she also talks about in this article is part of the book is about medical ptsd mm. and that is a thing that i think overlaps for a lot of people with 
um, physical illness. And let's talk about something that is even more like niche than medical yes. issues is medical, medical PTSD. PTSD. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the symptom of the symptom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more that I just don't. It's like, as she says, it's a woefully understudied area of medicine yeah. or um, under just an understudied area, period. Um, I think that will change. I think even COVID has let on that that will change. I have to tell you the first time I ever really heard of like ICU delirium was in COVID. Same. Yep. Um, and that to me is crazy because I'm pretty sure it existed prior to COVID. Yeah. Um, but why did no one talk about it prior to to that i don't know i certainly can tell you they were not talking about that 10 years ago yeah right. so um that's really interesting to me uh but yeah i mean I'm, I'm definitely interested in reading tessa's book just from a perspective of uh you know study <laughs> yeah right but um it is it is interesting uh to know that I don't know. I mean, I have had one memoir, one illness memoir I really loved, mm. which was My Glory Was I Had Such Friends. Yeah. It was about um, a woman who was in her 50s who had had a f one heart transplant in her 20s, needed a second one in her 50s. And she wrote about how kind of her friends rallied around her and helped her kind of get through this time by like each, you know, calendaring out when they would be there for her and like when yeah. they would be living with her um which isn't really that unique of an experience um but she wrote it as like a this is a friendship book right mm -hmm. and i have to say i read it and it was an illness book yeah. it was absolutely an illness book right um so that was kind of interesting to me that it mm -hmm. had gotten this like funny little spin um, even though I wonder if that spin helped its well, it success. did get I think picked up by some TV person to be like a limited series or something yeah. or other. Yeah. So I think yes. Uh, but I have to tell you, I read it and, and it was an like, illness book. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you've had any similar experiences. Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't. I don't know if I do. I also think like. Uh, this is more of like just about literature in general, but like most books are about many different things. Yes, and of you have, course, because life to, is about many different things. Exactly, and you have to pick one to basically not just one, but like usually you have to pick one main one to say for marketing purposes. You know, this is what you have to you have to claim that the book is X Y Z in order to to market it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the experience I've had, if anything, is that like. Overall, I probably haven't read that many illness books. I've read mm -hmm. some. The books that have probably impacted how I think about telling my story the most are not illness books, to be quite mm. honest. What are they? Um, just like other memoirs, other memoirs, other novels. What are the things favorites? that play with form? Um, I don't like one thing. I uh, a book I went back to a lot when I was first working on. When I was first working on mine was. Um, the Glass Castle, which is just like a really great classic memoir. Um, part of, I mean, partially what I was looking for in that book and what I was trying to do with what I was writing at the time was like 
that's a book about like childhood that is for adults um, and talks about being a kid in a way that doesn't feel, you know, like YA or um, miniaturized or infantilizing. Um, I also recently read uh, Carmen Rio Machado's book. Mm. Um, the name is escaping me, her memoir. Um, uh, it's from in the dream house oh okay never mind <laughs> um but like that's a book mostly about an abusive relationship but it's about a lot of different things it's about narrative and it's about form and one of the things i loved about it is that she is pulling apart um like the form of memoir and like the form of confessional writing and like doing something new with it um I did really love The Undying. Uh, the Undying, I, I think, is still tough. It's still a great book. Still tough. Um, definitely one of the more honest illness books I've read. Um, yeah. Uh, I, ended, I didn't relate to it that hard, but I, I know yeah, you did. Yeah, I, I remember. I mean, it, it did end up winning the Pulitzer. Yeah, I mean... I, I don't know how that affected its audience like i don't i don't really know how well it sold and mm -hmm. i also am always wrestling with the question of like what's more important what matters like you know people always like to say the thing of like if it touches one person then i've done my job i mean look but, uh, i'm yeah. i'm i'm here for the sales honestly like mm. i'm i'm writing to be i'm writing writing to be widely, widely read. read yeah um and widely sold i mean i that's the my, that's the goal for me at least like understandable packaging it into a i don't think a dishonest package but mm. something that doesn't scream illness i think is more my jam yeah that so that's totally makes sense um another thing i mean we're, we're about on an hour um, maybe there's one other part I wanted to bring up Okay. that they talk about in the article, which I think is really interesting, especially when you think about, when you think about like the, the type of memoir we opened by talking about, which is person is healthy and young, then they get sick and then they get sort of, or try to get healthy again. Um, and I also want to point out that Tessa Miller, I think she's diagnosed at 24, She's currently 32. Um, so uh, a, a, a isolated time frame mm -hmm. compared to, um, you know, what you and I experience, for example, mm -hmm. or what some other books are about. Um, but Anna Altman says in her article, uh, writing in her early 30s about the experience of her 20s, Miller recounts how prior to getting sick, she saw the world as a series of accomplishments to achieve and conquer. Some of her growing awareness of what really matters, contentment and self-love rather than accolades, seems like the realization of a young woman who might have come to the same conclusions with time, illness or not. <laughs> and I also am thinking about that as we think about like how the category is going to continue to expand as yeah. more people write about it and where the lines are between an experience that is, you know, uh, unique to illness or not mm -hmm. um and again what that what that provides 
Yeah, I mean, that stood out to me as well. Um, I think what what kind of again, I, it's hard for me to really say because I haven't read the book, right? Mm-hmm. But I am a hundred percent, undoubtedly sure that uh there are things that illness teaches you that nothing no other experience can mm-hmm. in the same way mm-hmm. um and i just i wonder if that didn't come out in her book mm-hmm. i i guess i would wonder what were those things and and i guess what what this this writer is talking about specifically because i mean i guess like self-love that obviously seems obvious that it's not just something you can attain if anything i think illness gives you the opposite of self-love um right which is like (laughs) interesting uh but i don't know i mean to me (laughs) i think illness has has taught me things that i can guarantee if you don't have illness in your life you don't know yeah and i'm sure everyone's understanding of of that of the connection between like what they learn and or feel and their illness is different right because everyone's illness is occupies a different role in everyone's lives i mean it's not any less a part of miller's life just because it's happened over the time of period of time has um right i also think like man illness is just not the it's all it's never the most interesting thing about someone i don't think yeah right um and so i guess that's my other thing is just writing i think i think there's very much inherent value in a few people writing very specifically and very honestly about their illness. I think beyond that, mm-hmm. it's, I think illness can serve as a important backdrop to explore other topics. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. I think a book about bodies where illness is the backdrop mm-hmm. can be really, could be really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's and it just yeah me, i guess <laughs> i agree with you and, and i think what um there she's also getting at in this piece is that it's an incredibly broad category the experience itself incredibly different experiences across the board um yeah I mean, which also with, makes it really hard too i mean right that's why there are you know books about race right it seems are easier for people to kind of like understand what that's going to be, I yeah. guess. Mm. I, I mean, we also, it's the distinction between illnesses and the distinction between illness and disability is something that we think about and talk about and deal with mm-hmm. in in regular life. It's a, it's an incredibly different thing, difficult thing to categorize even when you're talking about um, just when you're trying to describe people or a constituency or a voter yeah, block it's really like, hard it's not a uniting thing and you know media is just such a ripe um it's, it's so ripe for trying to put things in boxes um, mm-hmm. and that's just not how it, it works in real life 
Yeah, and I think uh, in my thought, it really does feel like in the last year, it's been very clear that certain illnesses were more interesting to other people than others based on how they were impacted by COVID. Yeah, right. And I think I found found myself in a unique position to be like, oh, people are interested in what I have to say because I am one of those immunocompromised people. Right, yeah. And I, obviously we can debate what immunocompromised really means, but yeah. like at the end of the day, like transplant patients have a real clear... They have a real claim on that one. Real clear on, <laughs> yeah. yeah, clear claim on the immunocompromised status. Yeah, yeah. Um, and no one would ever debate you that. on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... Uh, it's it's really interesting just i i don't know like the trend lines of what when something is interesting to people and when it's not and how do you use that or capitalize on it and how does that like frame its reception and how um you know i i don't know i just think that like certain things will continue to be more interesting to people in the illness space even yeah. than than other things. And obviously we already talked about cancer being kind of, you know, head honcho in right. all respects. But even now I'm like, there are so many cancer memoirs. It's really hard to like get another cancer memoir uh, yeah. because it's like, well, we've, we've read those. We've, we've done that. This. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, my prediction is we should get ready for the long COVID memoirs, the chronic COVID, co- the COVID long hauler memoir. The, yes, the post COVID syndrome. Mm-hmm. I think those are coming. I think they're going to come in great numbers, mm. and we should prepare ourselves now for that. I think there will be yeah, some grief memoirs coming. Yes, some definitely. COVID long hauler memoirs. Yes, some. Some um, physician out uh, burnout. Yes. Memoirs. Mm-hmm. Some, yeah, some uh, healthcare system memoirs. How the system is fucked. Some lessons in leadership. Yeah, tales I was going to say. What I'm really hoping for is a sequel to my <laughs> favorite memoir of the last couple of years, American Crisis: Lessons <laughs> yes, in Leadership American from the COVID nineteen pandemic. Yeah, some Governor Cuomo memoirs. To America, to crisis. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, interesting, all food for thought. Uh, something to think about. Like illness, it's constantly, our thoughts are constantly evolving. Remind. Really, what we yeah. want to be clear about is that whenever the two of us write our memoirs, all the people who are listening to this podcast will obviously be buying them right yes. like that's why we're doing this we're here to market ourselves and yes. um yeah build. when we when we write about it it'll be very good it'll yeah be, it'll be very good they'll it'll resolve be all the questions immune yeah from critique all of these issues they'll 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 handle them effortlessly yes uh and uh it'll be, it'll be perfect that's that that's that see you next week stronger that that don't kill me can only make me stronger i know